Pastor Paula alluded to last week that we are going over the over Hebrews 11, and that has come has become known as the Hall of Faith, the Hall of Fame of Faith. And um, so we'll start off with uh, Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, just because I think that's a good way to open up every all of these messages that we'll be going over. Um, now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Um, so typically when we think of Hall of Fames, I'm a sports guy, so I think of sports Hall of Fames, but obviously there's some other ones sprinkled in there. Uh, actually, the, they just had the Basketball Hall of Fame last night, and there were quite a few uh, big-time names uh, added to the group last night. And uh, interesting enough, a lot of them were uh, foreign players, so it's kind of cool because it kind of relates to this, the, the uh, people of faith, even us, because uh, we are foreigners here, right? We don't, we don't really belong here, so sometimes when you don't feel like you fit in, well, that's exactly why. We aren't meant to live in this world. We we're meant for eternity, right? Um, but so if you're a sports person, you can find yourself in a debate sometimes with uh, who is the greatest of all time in that particular sport, right? They call, we'll call it a goat debate. Um, I think, and I don't think football has this debate anymore. I think Tom Brady's resume speaks for itself. I, don't, I, hate, I hate to say it, but I think I, he, he, he's the goat. We can't, there's nothing we can really say about it now. Um, he's really successful, uh, except for that one uh, Sunday night, Super Bowl night against Nick Foles. You know, Nick Foles showed him uh, how it's done. Um, but I would say the most common debate is probably between LeBron James and Michael Jordan, right? Um, I think we all really know the answer. Sorry, Chris. Uh, but uh, we all know the real answer to that one. Um, but this got me thinking, did they have this debate back in the New Testament? Did they have this debate back in the early church? Were they debating about these people of faith that are mentioned in Hebrews 11? And were they asking themselves and debating who is the greatest person of faith of all time? Now, I'm sure that obviously Abraham was probably getting most of the votes, right? He's called father of our faith. So I'm sure that he was getting a majority of the votes, but I'm sure that David and Moses, Elijah, Enoch were all probably getting their share of votes too, right? You have Elijah and Enoch. They were so good. They were so faithful that they were translated into heaven. They never even died. So that's, if you want to put something on your resume, that's, a, that's a pretty impressive, I'd have to say. Um, I don't know exactly what, you know, because obviously we've seen Elijah in some bad times and he's still... God seen fit for him to just go straight to heaven. Um, so all these people had great credentials, but there's one that stands out to me the most. Um, I might be biased. I love this story ever since I was a little kid. But for me, the greatest of all time in, in talks of faith of the Old Testament, I'm going to have to go with Joseph. I think the things that he went through, the things we see of him, he just stands far and above the rest of these, uh, I guess, candidates. Um, in Hebrews 11:22. It says, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. So here it is pointing to the fact that although near death, Joseph remained faithful. And this quickly becomes a theme throughout his life. Um, and in studying Joseph's life, it was really hard. I was like, I don't know if I have enough time, really. I think I would need like a whole month to really dissect and go over Joseph's entire life because it's a vast story, right? If we were to label any book of the Old Testament as an epic, or story in the Old Testament as an epic, this would be the one that fits the bill. Um, it's definitely the longest chapters in uh, Genesis for sure. 
um, even when I was reading the story, I found myself uh, kind of thinking I have the urge for a $10 popcorn and maybe a movie theater drink. The story was so good, right? Um, but as I made my way through it, there was um, a theme that kept showing up, and it was decisions, right? Joseph finds himself in the Hall of Faith because of the decisions that he was able to make. And so I believe that we will see the faithfulness of Joseph shine through in his decisions. Faith is shown through our decisions. It's shown in our actions. It's shown in the way we think, the way we talk. It's shown in everything that we do. And if we wanted to minimize what we essentially do throughout the day, we would say that our day is made up of decisions. Think about how many decisions you've already made this morning, right? You made the decision to come to church, so you could give yourself a round of applause if you wanted to. Um, mostly, most of our decisions are small. Sometimes we've got big decisions. Sometimes they're monumental. And it's funny, though, sometimes when we're having these bigger decisions, we're trying to find the ideal uh, circumstance, right? We're looking for the ideal results when we make our decisions. We're looking for the ideal job, the ideal school, the ideal church. Hopefully, hopefully that's this one. Um, the ideal neighborhood. Um, sorry to break it to you guys, but there are good jobs, and there are good neighborhoods, and there are good churches. But we can't forget <clears throat> that all that is ideal and perfect are safe for us in eternity. Um, Alistair Bragg wrote, <clears throat> There is no ideal place to serve God except the place in which he has set you down. And so as we look at the life of Joseph, we will see that his situation, his circumstances, where he had been placed were far from ideal. They were far from perfect. If we actually look at him, we see that it was quite the opposite. Um, and in each circumstance that we see him in, we see that he is left to make. Uh, circumstance, we'll call it number one, the betrayal. So Joseph's story begins the same way that our stories, that our, that our day begins. His story begins with a dream. And in Genesis 37.5, it says, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So there were two dreams that Joseph shared with his family, and while both dreams were slightly different, they were speaking to the same thing. They were basically pointing to the fact that one day his brothers would bow down to him. And from reading it, we understand that his brothers already hated him well before this dream because he was the um, favorite of their father. And so when he told them, he shared this dream about them bowing down to him, it only added fuel to the fire. And in uh, Genesis 37, 18 through 20, we see what that hatred led them to do. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Um, we could call that a classic sibling overreaction, right? I'm sure we've all had moments with our siblings, um, but I hope none of those moments ever led to us to have thoughts like this. Um, luckily, one of them was level-headed enough, like, kind of like us, I assume, uh, where he was able to talk them out of killing the brother. He's like, let's just leave him in this hole in the ground. And then he, he, was gonna, he planned on coming back later to rescue him. Uh, but before he could make his way back, they uh, formulated a new plan for Joseph. In Genesis 37, 25 through 28, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern 
and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So soon after this, Joseph was uh, placed into the hands of another person when he was sold to a man named Potiphar. And so before we go any further into the story, we need to reflect on it a bit, right? Because that's what a good story will do. It'll cause us to think about what we just read, what we just watched, and how does this apply to our lives. So here's Joseph, and I think I failed to mention that he was uh, 17 years old during all of this. So keep that in mind during this whole uh, saga. He's 17 years old during all of this. Um, And he's betrayed by his brothers, stripped of his clothes, thrown into a hole in the ground, and only brought up out of the hole because his brothers viewed 20 pieces of silver as more valuable than he was. Uh, That sounds awfully familiar if you wanted to fast forward to uh, the life of Jesus. And uh, so soon after, he finds himself in a land that's not his kind of home, a land that he didn't know, being sold to a man that he didn't know. And whether we realize it or not, Joseph, in light of the wrong decisions made against him, has a decision of his own to make. And so put yourself in Joseph's situation and think about how you would react. Um, I was blessed with some speed, so I'd probably try to run, I think. I don't know exactly how that would go back then. I guess stand as far as I could see. You probably wouldn't get too far. Um, But Joseph was not responsible for the predicament that he found himself in. But he was well aware that he was responsible for his response. Had he responded differently, uh, there wouldn't be a story to tell, right? His name wouldn't be known. He uh, probably wouldn't have been mentioned in Hebrews 11. In uh, Genesis 39, 2 through 6, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of the Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Uh, The fact that he was well-built and handsome will definitely uh, pop up again. Uh, But this promotion that he just received didn't just happen. We know that God was behind the scenes, as these verses tell us, but Potiphar could see that the Lord is with Joseph by the way that Joseph carried himself. All right, he had every opportunity to slack off. He could have mouthed off. But Joseph knew that even though here he was being in the hands of his brothers and then sold into the hands of a well-timed caravan of Ishmaelites and then once again being sold to an Egyptian, he knew full well whose hands he was in. In uh, Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so Joseph made the decision that regardless of where he was, that he was going to serve God faithfully because even though this Egyptian thought that he owned him, Joseph understood who it was that he really belonged to. And so Joseph, in a moment in which the odds were stacked against him, a moment in which his entire world is uh, falling apart, um, found favor with the man that owned him because he made the decision to serve God where he was at. He made the decision to not allow what had been done to him to influence his actions. And so we have to think about how many times we have been, uh, maybe found ourselves being wronged, maybe having been put down, maybe having been let down, and how did we respond in those moments? Did we allow what others did to us dictate our decisions? 
Because um, it comes down not only to forgiveness, but it also comes down to rising above the actions of others. And I know this sounds um, kind of counterculture right now, but instead of looking at what has been done to us, we need to look at what has been done for us. And so we will make our way back to the thought, but let's look at the uh, second circumstance that we find uh, Joseph in. And so as we know, he was young, 17 years old, and they also mentioned that he was well-built and handsome. And usually this is a good thing, but sometimes I guess it could lead you into some problems. In uh, Genesis 39:7, And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. So here he is presented with a temptation that most young men aren't uh, known for being very successful against. If we were to make a list of all the temptations that young men face, this easily tops the list, right? It tops the list now and it topped the list back then. Uh, If you guys need evidence, just read through uh, the book of Proverbs and you'll see all these warnings against this exact same, the exact same situation that Joseph is in right now. And so we have circumstance number two, the temptation. And as we look at Joseph's response to this temptation, uh, the, the picture of him begins to develop, right? We begin to see his character shine through in these moments. In um, Genesis 39, 7 through 10, And after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. In uh, Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. And so if we are looking for the biblical definition of heart in this verse and throughout the Bible, our heart represents the seat of our desires, right? Because as we know, our desires are what drive us, our desires are what influence our decisions. And so when we look at Joseph's decision, when presented with his temptation, we get a clear picture of his desires. Um, To quote Alistair Begg again, he said, beware the day when desire, opportunity, and temptation come together. And as we see, the opportunity was there, and then the temptation presented itself in an unsubtle way. And so how was Joseph able to, in that moment, resist the temptation that has claimed so many victims? because his desires was missing from the equation. His desire was not aimed at pleasing, pleasing himself. His desires were not aimed at pleasing her. His desires weren't even aimed at pleasing Potiphar. His desires were aimed at pleasing his heavenly father. He said, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? And so now Jana, my loving wife, um, she knows full well that if she buys ice cream and brings it home, I'm going to eat that ice cream every night until it is gone. Um, Because I have the desire to eat ice cream. And she brings it home. I know it's behind the freezer door, right? So now I have the temptation and I have the opportunity to eat that ice cream. Now, if she brings home cake, that's not an issue, right? I have the temptation and I have the opportunity, but temptation does not have any real estate in my desires. Ice cream does, for sure. Um, But so in dealing with sin, in dealing with potential temptations, it is best that we do not allow the opportunities to present themselves, right? I'm fine not eating ice cream if it's not in my house. When we go out to eat or something, I don't go around looking for ice cream. I don't order ice cream with my meal. But if it makes makes its way past my door and it's within reach, I'm going to reach for a spoon and I'm going to reach for a bowl and, yeah, I'm going to throw down some ice cream. Um, 
but we see that we are not meant to deal with temptations head on. We see that it says Joseph wouldn't even amuse being around this woman. While his desires were strong enough to fend her off in that moment, Joseph understood that sometimes temptation can um, lead us where we don't want to go. Sometimes temptation can be very convincing. And so he knew that he needed to remove himself from that situation so that his loyalty didn't need to be constantly tested. And so Joseph was able to avoid the trap because he was uninterested in the bait. He had one purpose in mind, and that was pleasing God. He knew where his promotion had come from. He understood that his situation could have been a lot worse had God not intervened. He understood that to serve God was a higher priority than serving himself. And we see another great example on how to deal with temptation in another interaction that Joseph had with Potiphar's wife. In uh, Genesis 39, 11 through 12, one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of, the, none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me, but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. So this time her methods were a little more drastic, right? She wasn't, she wasn't asking anymore. She grabbed a hold of him. And Joseph had an equal, if not more drastic response. He ran away. He knew that he needed to remove himself from this situation. And I just have to imagine that Paul, as he was writing some of his letters to these churches and individuals, that he had this, this thought in mind in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. And then again in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth. And then again in 1 Corinthians 10.13-14, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. And so, right, we've heard of the term uh, fight or flight. Well, in dealing with the devil, we are not called to go toe-to-toe. And I know that we have the word at our disposal. We have the Holy Spirit and prayer at our disposal. But when presented with the temptation, when that temptation is within reach, we are called to flee. And so that is always an option for us to take, right? It said that, he will always provide a way out. So there's never going to be a temptation that we're faced with that we do not have the opportunity to remove ourselves from that situation. And so once again, I personally find myself being impressed with this 17-year-old, and I'm sure we all do here, right? Because once again, he impresses us. Odds are stacked against him. He finds himself in a bad situation, and he ends up making his decision, not based based off of his circumstances, but based off of what God would have him do. And I'm sure that it came as a surprise to him uh, once again after he was choosing faithfulness over the other options that had presented themselves to him that he finds himself on the wrong end of a false accusation. In uh, Genesis 39, 16 through 20, she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story, that that Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And so circumstance number three, the accusation. So here again, Joseph finds himself, after having done the right thing, finds himself on the wrong side of anger. And so how do we respond when people lie about us? How do we respond when... um, Maybe there's false accusations made against us. And I'm not saying right, we shouldn't defend ourselves, right? Obviously, some lies and some accusations hold more weight than others. But what I'm saying is, are you allowing those to dictate your decisions? Are you allowing those to dictate 
how you act. Um, right here, Joseph is falsely accused, presented with yet another opportunity to maybe allow de- doubt to set in. He could have easily started to look at a situation and be like, you know what? God isn't with me, right? Maybe I've been abandoned. Um, maybe I need to start relying on myself to get myself out of this situation, right? He could have allowed hopelessness to set in. But instead, we see him once again being faithful, understanding whose hands he was in. In uh, Genesis 39, 20 through 23, while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So Joseph in this moment didn't allow the lies told about him to dictate his decision making. He allowed the truth of who he was and whose he was to find how he responded in this moment. We see time and time again when Joseph finds himself in these predicaments that he isn't concerned with where he is, he's concerned with who it is that is with him. I remember when um, I first moved to Tulsa to go to Bible school, uh, the first job I landed uh, was not the most ideal. Um, I was grateful for it, but um, the formula wasn't quite right for me because it was lots of hours, low pay, which isn't usually, not usually what I'm looking for in the job. Um, But the people I got to work with, they made that job a whole lot better. Fast forward a few years, I get another job and... You would think it's more ideal, right? Because the pay is higher, the hours, are, the hours are less, but yet the people I work with made those days drag on forever. No offense to them, but uh, it's just how it went. So, but you can work for a uh, bad company and have the right company, and it'd be more enjoyable than working for a good company and having bad company. And this points us to the truth that the people that we surround ourselves with make a difference in bad moments. And when we, like Joseph, know that we are surrounded by the love of our Heavenly Father, then the situations that present themselves to us, the circumstances we find ourselves in, might seem a little more bearable because we understand that those situations aren't permanent. And so here's Joseph once again in a place uh, where he doesn't want to be, where he probably doesn't belong, and here again he's making the decision to serve God where he is at. He makes a decision to focus on God rather than a circumstance. And we see because of his faithfulness, although he is wrongfully put in prison, that he finds favor in the eyes of the warden and he is put in charge. And, um, I mean, I've read over the story plenty of times and I don't don't ever recall seeing him with his head down. Um, We don't see him ever focus on himself. Had he allowed himself to be consumed with his situation, he never would have been able to receive the favor that he did. He wasn't concerned with the problems he was faced with. He was concerned with the one who could provide him the solution. And instead of allowing the burden that he had to definitely feel, right, this, I can't imagine what he's going through, but instead of allowing these feelings to define him, he decided that he would be a blessing in these moments. In uh, Genesis 40, 1 through 7, sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offered their master the king of Egypt, offended their master the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? 
Uh, before we look at uh, what was um, visibly upsetting these two men, we have to look at Joseph's question. He asked them, why are you so sad today? So we are well aware of Joseph's problems, and we know um, through experience how having a rough day, maybe a long week, maybe even a bad year, can um, kind of cloud our minds, right? We can get so self-centered on our own issues that we forget that there's other people going through things. And um, here we see Joseph, despite his situation, he's being observant enough to see that someone else is in need of help. In uh, John 13, 34, this is Jesus speaking. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So here's Joseph, a couple thousand years before Jesus gave this command, and here he is putting it into work. Jesus, Joseph predates the law. He predates the law of love, which Jesus gives us. And yet again, here he is allowing God to guide his actions, his mind, his, uh, his mindset, and his words. And so if you're familiar with the story, Joseph finds out that these two men are in prison with him, are disturbed by a dream that they each had. And jo Joseph, giving full credit to God, interprets their dreams for them. Uh, one we won't go over, but it wasn't too good of an interpretation. But he lets the other one know that he will be back serving the Pharaoh, and he makes this request to him in Genesis 40, 14 through 15. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So unfortunately, uh, Joseph's kindness was not remembered. He was forgotten. And it wasn't until two years later that he was remembered and called upon to interpret a, interpret a dream for the Pharaoh. So circumstance number four, forgotten. Joseph was forgotten after all he had done for this one man. And so yet here again, Joseph is propositioned with, I'm sure, thoughts of doubt, maybe thoughts of anger towards God, feelings of despair. And yet we don't see Joseph act on these tendencies. Instead, Joseph looks to the source of all comfort, the source of life, instead of looking to his problems. And so once again, the way he conducts himself in a strange and godless place allows the Pharaoh to notice that God is with Joseph, once again prompting a promotion. And so Joseph found favor in the eyes of everyone he came in contact with because of the way he carried himself in the favor of God. Joseph understood that the situation, the circumstances that he found himself in were nothing compared to the promises of God. And he would have heard of these promises of, of, from God, from his father Jacob, when he heard all of the stories that Abraham and Jacob and Isaac had. He would have heard of the story of Isaac about to be sacrificed before God himself intervened. And he understood that the same God who was leading Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the same God that was leading him. And so Joseph was able to press on through betrayal, enslavement, temptation, false accusations, imprisonment, and even being forgotten not because there was some peculiar strength that he had that others did not, but because he knew whose hands was guiding the events of his life. It was the same hand that had been guiding his family's lives since Abraham, Abraham had been called to leave all that he knew to follow God. And Joseph would, would have been well aware of the promises made to Abraham, that Abraham's descendants would become a great nation. He was well aware that through Abraham's descendants would come Jesus. He was looking towards the promise. And so it's interesting to look back at each situation that he was faced with, right? All of these situations hitting him at a different angle, coming at him at a, from, a, from a different way, and yet he responds the same way each time. He remains faithful. Um, I heard uh, Pastor Samuel, Samuel Rodriguez say this in a sermon, and I believe that it, uh, Joseph understood this to be true too. 
The God of the outcome is the same God of the process. The process is temporary, but the promise is permanent. In uh, Philippians 3, 13 through 14, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining on towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So Joseph serves as a great example in life that when faced with less than ideal circumstances, when faced with temptation that, that ultimately we have a decision to make, Joseph, like this verse says, didn't allow where he was or what was happening to him to take his eyes off of the promise. There were moments in his life where I'm sure the promise was all that he had to hold on to. And he understood that despite the current state of affairs that he found himself in, that God's promise was still in effect. Joseph wasn't moved by circumstance because he was looking towards the problem, uh, the promise. He wasn't looking at the problem, he was looking at the promise. Um, but I'll let you in on a little bit of secret that Joseph was probably doing throughout his life. He wasn't making these decisions in the moment. He was making these decisions in the moments before these circumstances ever revealed themselves. He was making these decisions in the moments of prayer, in the moments of the stories that he would have heard of all the faithfulness that his um, family had provided for him. And so that he understood that no matter what I come up against, no matter what I may face, I am going to remain faithful to God. And that's why he's mentioned in Hebrews 11. And uh, a little bit of news for you guys. Um, it's too late for your guys' names to make it into the book of Hebrew. Um, but there is another book. Um, and this book is, is not, does, not re, uh, does not reside in the hands of men. It resides in the hands of God and it's still being written. And uh, John mentions this book in his letter written to the seven churches in Revelations 21, 22 through 27. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are his temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter, into, enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So eternity is the promise that we had to look forward to. Eternity is the promise that we had to hold on to when life maybe seemed like it's all too much. Eternity is the, gifts, is the gift of those who remain faithful. Eternity is the reward for those who can look past their circumstances while their eyes are set on the promise. Those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior until the very end, those who can do that, their names will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, never to be removed. And uh, so to close us out, uh, I wanted to show you a picture that pops up. There we go. Um, this work was done by two of our students during a message I gave uh, last two weeks ago. And uh, I gave them these pieces of clay, and I said, just make whatever you want to make while I'm going over my message. And uh, I feel like they impressed. We have a monkey with a top hat, and then we have a turtle. I don't, know if I, I don't think I saw the students here today, so I was trying to brag on them a little bit. Um, but what they created in their hands points us to an eternal truth. We, like these two pieces of clay, are being formed by the hands that we are in. So I, so I asked them, and I'll ask you guys too, whose hands are you placing your life in? Whose hands are you placing your eternity in? Whose plans are you um, putting your diagnosis in? Whose hands are you putting your situations into? Whose hands are you putting the lives of your children into? Whose hands are you putting your travels into? If you answer the hands of God, then you can rest assured that despite what is happening in your life, 
in the world around you. You are being shaped into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are being shaped by the promise of his return. So we'll uh, pray. Um, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that in all circumstances that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. We pray that your words hit our hearts in the way that it was supposed to. We thank you that with each decision that we are faced with, that we realize there is an opportunity there to remain faithful. We thank you for your word and your Holy Spirit who guided us into all truth. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your patience in forming us into the image of your Son. We thank you for today. We thank you for the air we breathe. In Jesus' name, amen.